You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you guys for joining us. As you do each and every week, want to remind you guys our deal with Amazon is just flat out amazing. Not only can you guys do your shopping, but you're also helping out some great veterans organizations. Here's all you got to do. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner. Then do your normal Amazon shopping, whatever it is you need, whether it's just stuff around the house, stuff for your business, gifts, whatever it is. Once you complete your purchase, we get a kickback from Amazon on that purchase, and we donate it directly to one of the great foundations that you've heard here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So you'll be helping out great organizations like Mission Memorial Day, the Greatest Generation, Foundation, Merging Vets and Players, the Shadow Warrior Foundation, the Pat Tillman Foundation, 22 Kill, and Fight or Die. So go to HazardGround.com. Again, click on the Amazon banner next time you do your Amazon shopping. It's a simple and easy way to give back to veterans everywhere and be part of the Hazard Ground community. Speaking of the Hazard Ground community, make sure you guys get on iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Those help out so much. Not only do they let us know what you think about the show, but they also grow this podcast and let more people hear about these great, amazing stories that veterans everywhere are doing. Thanks for your guys' time. As always, now on to this week's episode. This week's guest is actually one of our repeat guests, and we brought him back because, well, not only is the story so compelling, but his latest book, Echo and Ramadi, is just doing fantastic, off-the-charts kind of sales from it. It is getting critical acclaim for his story of the time in Iraq where he was a Marine infantry officer leading guys through Ramadi, and we welcome back Scott Husing to the Hazard Ground. Scotty, good to talk to you again, man. Hey, great to be back on the show. Well, look, uh, first of all, congratulations on the book, Echo and Ramadi, again, the title, uh, just an amazing story that has really captivated a lot of people. Let's start there for a moment. We do want to go back to, after 24 years of service in the Marines, you certainly have a lot to uh, to talk about, but let's let's go back to Echo and Ramadi and, and in writing the book. You know, we talked about this the last time you were on, expectations for this thing. I mean, I, I'm sure you've exceeded them all, but did you think it would be this good? I was hopeful, but, you know, when I wrote the story... I was really writing it for the Marines and the family. So if I sold 250 copies that they could read and they'd be immortalized, I would have been happy with that. But since, I I mean, we did the show before we even launched. And since February, just five months in, I mean, it was an immediate bestseller after launching on Fox and Friends. And we've just been so grateful that it's been doing so well. And it's uh, been so great to get out and and do signings, but also doing a lot of speaking now and sharing the story so that this battle and, you know, this story of the Marines and the families is, is told. And, you know, I always get asked, you know, what's, what's the book about? Cause you, you know, you look at the cover and there's this badass Marine on there. It looks like he's about to kick the door in and break windows. But, when people ask me what the core message of Echo and Ramadi is, it's really the power of human connection. It's It really, truly is about the people. And I, I get so many great emails and instant messages from total strangers telling me how this story impacted them. And I, they write things like, I had no idea. Even friends and family, they're like, I had no idea you did any of that stuff. So it's, it's really humbling. You know, that, that human connection that you talk about, I mean, that – we experience that a lot here on the podcast. You know that. I mean, you and I have, have become, you know, let's call it friends uh, since we've done our podcast and we've talked about other business ventures together and things of that nature. But, you know, that human connection uh, is is amplified in combat, you know, and that really is something that, that binds this veteran community together so much. And, you know, I've remarked to you before, I think, you know, and I've said it to other people as well. You know, the, the veteran community is struggling right now for a variety of reasons, not only because we've been in combat for over 15 years and, you know, the VA is not where we need it to be and the healthcare and everything else. And, and you see all these different veterans organizations out there, right? And everybody always, they, they probably do it to you. People, hey, what veterans organization should I do, donate to? I want to help out. Which one should I go to? And I, I tell people the same thing, Scott. I say, listen, you got to do your own research. You got to find a company that's in, in line with your values and what you want. But, you know, I've talked to you about, I wish we could consolidate some of these veterans organizations, right? I wish we, we could all, you know, as we talk about economy of force and unity of effort, if we started all working together, we would be better off. But the problem is, is that as veterans, you know, we see each other struggling and we do the only thing that we know how, and that's take care of each other. 
And that's where all that comes from. And that taking care of each other, that, that human spirit that you just referred to before is born in combat. It's born through training. It's born through working together. And it just, it continues to grow and grow and grow. No, you're absolutely right. And in, I mean, a prime example of that is, I, I mean, I never even know who to give credit to sometimes because my involvement with Joel Carpenter at Speaker Buzz, I'm not sure if you did the intro or someone did the intro, but you know, Joel's, you know, doing great things for vets. He's a vet. He's a Green Beret and Army Ranger. Who, we, we don't hold that against him, um, <laughs> but, uh, or you. Uh, so, you Thank know, you. It's, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's that connection where y- y- there's so many circles that overlap. And it's, it's, not, it's only a matter of time be- before those circles do overlap within our networks of veterans, those who support veterans the nonprofits, you know, all of those boutique 501s that I always call them because there's they're little niche pockets of veteran support. And that's a cool thing. And I'm with you, man. I think it should be consolidated because, you know, we, we you know, for the listeners who don't know, me and Mark uh, have talked offline too. And I quote Mark all the time on one of his many rants about the professional sports agencies not you know doing right by <laughs> veterans that's a whole pod i don't want to rabbit hole but it's true and i'm conflicted because i know a lot of veterans and supporters who are former nfl players former mlb players and these guys and you know there's so many of them that those few that i'm even friends with they're already aligned with veterans but the organization big business and all that you know i i agree with you and if we build this coalition of veteran artists veteran authors, veteran entertainers. I, I think we're going to get there. And, and, and that's really an important message. And I think Joel and Speaker's Buzz is going to be a big part of that. And even even some of the other organizations I'm affiliated with, like Bravo 748, who's, which was founded by a Gold Star mom, Jamie Burton. And, you know, just bringing people with stories together. It's it's super important. Absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's what binds us and, and it's why this podcast exists. Really, it is because we're just here to kind of connect people and tell people about the stories of the great things that great Americans have done. And, um, you know, we, we don't get that out there enough. What is let, the, let me, go ahead. Let, let me, let me, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example while we're talking about bonding together and that, that brotherhood and sisterhood that's forged in the military, what makes us so great. And, and I will say that because I'm obviously biased, but it does, it, it breeds a different kind of person through that, that forging process of the military and service to your nation unwillingly. But I, I recently, when I say recently, like a couple hours ago, got my first legitimate rejection from an indie bookstore in the, in the, I'll just say Northern California, and they said because of my affiliation with, uh, you know, conservatives at all, publishers, the type of people I hang around with, they didn't think it was a good fit. I mean, flat out told me that because of that. And and what's, what's most important is, sadly, you know, politics rears this ugly head because the owner of this, this indie bookstore, obviously, they have their own opinion. They can have in their store whoever they want to sign. But politics just got in the way of storytelling. And again, this isn't a story about war. And my political and affiliations and views, you know, don't have to align with whoever published my book or whatever radio shows I do, whatever TV shows I go on. You know, it's it's astounding to me, Mark, that they let that get in the way of, of sales. You know, and I don't have a business degree, but I'm thinking, what kind of moron says no to a guy that can, they can bring in to sell a couple hundred books? Yeah. You know, like I just, it, it's stymied me, especially in an area that has been a hub of military activity for decades. Yeah. And the funny part to that too, is regardless of what your political views are, all of us as Americans should be born capitalists, right? Cause that's how this country exists. It's why we've gotten so far from where uh, we first started is, is the idea that, Hey, listen, I can make some money and you know what? I can make more. <laughs> yes, but, you you know, of, I, the Trumps, I can smell the Trump on you from here. Well, I'd, I, again, I, I'd like to leave my, my political affiliation out of this whole thing. No, but, I know I'm with you, but you know, that's one thing I will say is, you know, that capitalism and the, the, the ability to succeed and prosper as a nation to have independent businesses and entrepreneurs, especially veteran entrepreneurs is a wonderful thing. Yeah. I don't care what flavor the administration is. If they support that, I support them. All right. So as far as the book is concerned, what is like one thing you've heard from somebody or or 
you know, a comment that just has stayed with you, something that's resonated with you from, from somebody's reaction to the book? Oh, wow. Uh, great question. I get, I've been, I've been really trying to get better at sharing some of the messages and little video blurbs on social media too, because, um, they range from okay. So here's a here's the latest one. This this she's a housewife in Southern California. She set up this event uh, to raise money for our charity, Save the Brave, at Gelson's Markets recently. And she's like, "Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Uh, I loved your book, and uh, I use that word all the time now. That friction that you describe under the chaos of combat and dealing with the uncertainty. And I use that word with my husband now, like when he's getting into my junk, I'm like, Hey, friction don't need to deal with it. And, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, lighthearted stories like that. And then there's others where, you know, I just have to, you know, push back from the desk and, you know, wipe the tears out of my eyes when I get messages from people and, you know, the, the one I've, the example I've used most recently in a lot of speaking has been with Staff Sergeant Phil Morehouse, who is with Task Force 19 Infantry Army brother, who was in Ramadi at the time we were fighting. And he wrote me this email. It pops up late one night and he says, sir, I'm, I'm probably sure that you don't remember me. Uh, my name is Staff Sergeant Phil Morehouse. I was an administrative clerk with uh, the Task Force when you were in Ramadi. And I remember the night that Corporal Libby was shot and i remember the call on the radio and i remember racing across the street to the battalion aid station across route michigan and i remember standing there i remember the vehicles pulling in i remember the sound of the brakes and the dust cloud that surrounded the vehicles and your marines carrying corporal libby out and i remember you and the look on your face and i remember every single step that you took that night and i hadn't thought about that in 12 years until I read your book and he, he goes on in the email, but he, he ends with something really important. And he says, yes, we made a difference. And I was just, you know, I, I emailed him right back. I was like, God dang, man, that, that is powerful stuff. And, you know, I, I'm thankful to him that, you know, he shared that with me and even more thankful that he allows me to use his name and, and share that story because it is so, so personal, but so emblematic of the type of brotherhood and, and sisterhood and camaraderie that we share under the worst conditions that it takes time, sometimes a decade to even process that and at least know that somebody remembered it and honored it either in a book or in an email. It doesn't matter to me. And, and for those who haven't had a chance to read Echo and Ramadi yet, you know, I mean, to put this whole thing in a nice little bow, you sum it up in the book when talking uh, about Libby's death and I'll quote it directly. We were all brothers thrust into the chasm and we took care of each other better than anyone else we've ever known. And, and that, that human spirit right there, um, and, and, you know, Libby as uh, a guy that was in your unit that you guys lost, I mean, uh, that is, is what's still binding everybody together today, that moment. It's, it's one of, of many. And, you know, Corporal Dustin Libby was, um, you know, killed on December 6, 2006 in a pretty brutal five-hour firefight uh, and he was the first loss of the entire battalion as we were in country. My company happened to be in Ramadi working for the army, but it, it hit us really hard. And the fact that I had a, a personal relationship with, with Corporal Libby because he was such a gregarious guy, such an, you know, just a character. And, you know, as I, I write in the book too, he's like, you know, you're not, you're not supposed to have favorites, but I'd be lying if I said Libby wasn't one of my favorites. He, he absolutely was because he was all about taking care of business. He was a trusted leader. He was a squad leader in one of the platoons and just loved, respected, and feared and, and one shot by all of his Marines. And it, it was tough. And when I say, you know, we, we took care of each other better than anything I'd ever known, is really the Marines took care of me. And I owe them so much eternal gratitude in my life for everything they did and the way they performed under those conditions. Scott, so often when we do this podcast and so often when a, a lot of us veterans get talking about experiences, we end up reliving some memories that we forgot that we had. You know, it happens so many times when you just start getting on a roll and you start talking that new memories or memories that you kind of discarded before and didn't have flash back up. 
Was there any of that in recalling discussions about the book with people or, as you just said, you know, somebody who told you a story that kind of just jarred a whole thing that was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't, you know, have that in the book or I didn't remember that before? Absolutely. I've had so many moments where I I, I thought my memory would, would fail me as I was writing Echo Normati, but I, I did over, you know, I did over 75 interviews with the Marines and the families and soldiers just to make sure that I got it right. And it, during that process, that's an amazing part of being a, a writer and, and uh, a, a journalist and being an artist is you do these interviews and then things creep out and they remind you of, of a story that you'd either forgotten or you had, especially as the commander of over 250 Marines, you just, you know, you can't see everything on the ground. You can't be in every place at one time. And some of those stories just boiled to the surface. And when I got done asking questions, like I did of Sergeant Jonathan Espinoza, I shut up and sat there and started typing in that story about him being shot and medevaced and the whole Superman pillow and his journey back to Shanghai helicopters and get back to the unit, I was thinking to myself, man, that only happens in the movies. But this happened in my own unit, and I didn't even know about it until after the fact, until 10 years after the fact. No one had ever told me, like, hey, you know, by the way, Espinosa was on his way home to go see his family after being shot in the chest by a sniper and then made his way back to the company. That's how connected he felt to the brothers he was fighting with. It was is crazy. So yeah, there's a, there's a ton of stories for for the Marines to share with me. And personally, when things popped up, uh, you know, I had to kind of go to my journal and you know just kind of validate it to make sure it was accurate. But you know, I never tell anybody either, Mark, that I had some giant catharsis or it was some therapeutic endeavor for me to write this story about a time of war uh, during some of the bloodiest combat we've seen in you know our nation's history. history yeah 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 and, and that was another important aspect to tell this story of Ramadi was that I didn't want it to get buried under the other great battles that we fought in this long war like Fallujah or Baghdad or in Afghanistan like um you know Helmand Province or uh you know Kandahar any of those places it, it's an important battle and and as we're defining it more you know we we talk about the first battle of Ramadi the second battle of Ramadi but it's really a two-year fight and for a lot of people who aren't around what we experienced that's hard for them to conceive it's like two a two-year fight for the city and that was the case as I continue to talk to more and more people that fought there from 2004 to 2006 is that there was this ebb and flow, this sine wave of combat from highs and lows, but everybody fought to gain control of that city, which was the capital of Alambar province. And Mattis, General Mattis at the time, said, if we lose Ramadi, we risk losing the entire province. And that was important and permeated our political and military decision makers like Bush and Petraeus when they said, yeah, we're going to order the surge. We're going to flood the battle space with initial 20,000 troops, and we're going to just hammer down on all these pockets of resistance and just crush them into fine powder. And that's what we were part of during the surge strategy with the 15th Mew, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, and Echo Company, which was then chopped to uh, 1st Brigade Combat Team when we fought under 19 Infantry and 177 Armor in the city. Scott, I want to go back to the, to the death of Corporal Liberty for a moment for those who haven't read the book because – you kind of talk about it, and you do great detail in talking about your emotions, but I kind of want to hear you speak to it. You had to call his mother. Um, you had to call Corporal Livy's mother and, and tell her that her son had been killed. Uh, give me the, the, the feelings you had before that phone call, getting through it and afterwards, and then uh, I don't want to spoil it because I want you to tell it, but what was Corporal Libby's mother's reaction after you had gotten, given her that phone call? Well, it was like many, you know, a, a tough time. It's it's nothing you can prepare yourself for. I mean, you know this. There's no class they give you or uh, practice to to call the mother of a 22 year old kid that just died moments before who was fighting right next to you. But you know, if something happened to my family or someone I loved, I, I'd certainly want a phone call and just writing a letter wasn't going to be enough. And, you know, you, in amidst all of the emotion and everything else, you also have to deal with 
the friction of of actually making a phone call. It's not like you can just pick the phone up and dial the number. You got to do the time difference. You got to make sure that you're calling the right number. You got I'm calling from a satellite phone and you know graveyard of broken up and blown up Humvees when I had to dial that number. And when she picked up the phone, it was there's just no way to really describe it than you know heartbreaking and to hear her voice and to hear her listen to me and and come back and say that she loved us and that they were thinking of us and they cared for us. It was just, you know, to be a gold star family member, to lose your son or daughter, to lose a brother or sister is it, it's unimaginable. I mean, we can, we can understand that loss because we've lost brothers in arms and sisters in arms. But for Jenny Libby to tell me that she loved us and she was thinking about us like any mother would to any son was overwhelming. And she continues to share that love, not only with me, but all of the Marines whenever they call her and her brother or her son, her other son, Chris, uh, Dustin's brother, we're still very connected and they're extraordinary people. That's the only word I ever used to describe them, that they can lose so much yet continue to love us so much, despite having been through the worst conditions and to share that loss of, of their son, our fellow Marines. It, it's just, it's something amazing. And, you know, like Chris Libby is another prime example. I mean, he's obviously around my age, so we stay pretty connected and we talk and, uh, next week, I'm actually going to be in South Carolina on the USS Yorktown doing an Echo and Ramadi symposium. And Chris is coming to the symposium. He's going to be on the panel wow. with me, along with one of my squad leaders, one of my platoon commanders, and one of my Iraqi interpreters, who's now a U.S. citizen. So you want to talk about connection. You want to talk about staying connected to those you lead. I think there's no better example than what we're doing next week in, in Mount Pleasant on board the USS Yorktown. And, you know, what's cool about that is, you know, I still feel very privileged to lead these guys and to lead the families and that they ask for my leadership is something that I, I don't feel an obligation to. Um, it's something that comes to me naturally. And I know that's tough for some people, some people who have led and been surrounded in those types of conditions, but to still lead them to this day, 10, 12, 14 years after we were in that city in Ramadi. Um, it doesn't stop. Leadership for me is not a nine to five gig, Mark. It's it's something that will be with me my whole life. And it's not just those Marines in Ramadi. It's every Marine or any Marine I ever served with. I feel I'm always there for them if they need me and I want to be available to them. And I'm honored every time they ask me for a letter of recommendation to the police department or to college or their MBA program, you know, they're growing up so fast, but, uh, it's just really, really humbling for me and an honor to, to be able to continue to lead them. And your sentence is perfectly said when leadership is not a nine to five job, not if you're any good at it, that's for damn sure. Uh, Real quick, one more, uh, anecdote on, on Corporal Libby. Um, his mother wrote you a letter. What was it like getting that letter and how surprised were you? I don't think I was surprised because I knew their family and and what the phone call had meant to them. But it wasn't until I think January that I received the letter, January, February, we'd already pushed West. And uh, to get that letter, you know, Jenny simply said, you know, that she was thankful for the call and she knew how hard it was to make those types of phone calls. And, you know, I still have that letter. It's, it's tucked away in a, a box here in my office and uh, I freak out every time I think I've misplaced it or I put it in a different box because I don't hold on to a lot of material possessions, but that letter is, you know, that's something very personal, something very important to me. And uh, to get it from Jenny was, you know, one of many she sent me over the years and, and also, you know, when I had to ask her if I could use that letter as the only picture in the book, the entire book has no pictures because I didn't feel that pictures were necessary. If people want to see pictures, they can go to my website and see pictures of the Marines. But Jenny's letter, that, that picture I took of her letter is the only picture in the book. That's how important it was to me. Amazing stuff. Just unreal. And uh, when you read it, it just rips your heart out, you know, but in the same respect, 
uh, you know, having gone through it, it's hard for people who haven't gone through it. It's really hard to, to understand, but the best way it I does, can. It does. Yeah. It, it really is hard. It really is heart wrenching, but you know, for any listener that's thinking, like, God, I'm not going to pick up this book because I'm going to break down in tears. Well, yeah, you are. I, and trust me, I've had plenty of battle-hardened Marines and soldiers call me uh, after reading that chapter and say, hey, thanks, a-hole, for making me cry on a plane next to a total stranger. <laughs> uh, I'm like, well, suck it up because uh, you're going to have to break out the plane next again. But there's plenty of stories of triumph and leadership and team building and overcoming diversity throughout the book. But – when we're talking about our gold star families, what's so important, Mark, to realize is that they don't want to be viewed as these dour widows or moms that are shrouded and they're just consumed with this death because they're not. The story I'm trying to tell is, and, and even in this pod, is that their story is one of hope and one of brightness because despite their loss, Despite all of the pain and everything they go through, they continue to carry a torch for us that shines so much light for so many veterans and so many of us that fought that are still trying to find their way through the darkness. And that is what they want to be. They want to be part of the family, and they are part of our family. And any Gold Star family listening, I just want to say we love you guys, and we're always here for you. Those who don't know what a Gold Star family is, that – family member that lost someone in combat they are just an amazing beacon of hope and we're just eternally indebted to them for everything they do for us yeah and and if anybody's interested i'll shamelessly plug the the podcast itself diane layfield uh, was a gold star mom we had on the hazard ground podcast uh, if you go back to mother's day this year is when we released that episode around that time frame and I can tell you, I mean, I was literally crying during that episode I, I, as I was recording the thing. It was, it was so gut-wrenching uh, to hear. But it, in the same respect, there is a motive. To, there's, there's a grace to it. You know, there is a gratitude to it. There is a, uh, a, a, a just a special kind of uh, feeling that these Gold Star families have that they are thankful in, in a way that is just it, it's hard to comprehend because they've lost so much, as you've said, but yet they are they are gracious enough to understand one the purpose and two that you know they did it doing something they love and taking care of people that needed them. Yeah, and you know, again, it all kind of circles back is the the whole reason Diane was on Hazard Ground was her story's also in my book. Her son Travis was killed in Ramadi in two thousand four you know, 24 months before we showed up in the city. And I met Diane at a special reading at the Marines Memorial Club in San Francisco. And we've been friends ever since. I love her to death and she's an amazing person. And that's why I said, Mark, you got to, you know, try and get Diane on the show. It's an amazing story because not only is she a Gold Star mom, like that's not enough, but Diane has also done so many great things for other Gold Star families, uh, benefits and state legislation and getting all kinds of, she's just nonstop. I love her. Diane, if you're listening, you're awesome. Uh, let's continue, Scott, with uh, some more from the book, Echo and Ramadi, uh, because, you know, as you mentioned, it, it'll tug at you several different ways. Um, when you think back to some of the, the, the stories that you've told, um, did, did they all come across the way you wanted them to? I mean, I, I know you did a lot of work in the book, and I know that sounds silly to ask, but I mean, sometimes things look different on paper than when you think about them in your head or you say them out loud. <laughs> um, well, you know, people often ask, too, like, well, how long did it take you to write the book? And I say 12 years. And they're like, wow, that's a long time to write a book. But all told, it was about a year from start to finish before I found um, an agent publishing house. But, you know, I say 12 years because the story would not have been the same had I written it right when we came back. And I think that's, what's important to know is that, you know, my guys and the families had to process. And I think that it just worked out that, you know, I, I, I started writing it, you know, around, I don't know, 2010, 2011. And then I lost it. Someone stole my computer and a bunch of notes. And I was like, crap man this is gone and i was in this deep funk and the marines started calling me they're like hey sir how's the book coming i'm like great great totally lying to him dad written a word <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't written a word and 
it wasn't until I got off active duty, you know, I worked in Hollywood for a little bit and then, and then bought this ranch down here in Southern California. And I said, yeah, I'm gonna lock myself in my office for the next year and write this story. And then got an agent and, you know, he sold the book a month later, but that whole process of writing the story, the manuscript and editing, then getting a project editor, uh, my freelance editor, copy editing, and then all the final revisions, um, to say, did it come out on paper the way I thought in my head? Yes, it did. Um, I, I think the story is exactly how I wanted to tell it because, you, you know, it's punctuated with these highs and lows and wins and losses of the people and the battle and the dynamics and all of these amazing characters that come through in the story. And that's how it came out to me. So I'm pretty happy with uh, what we put together. And it, it's such a team effort. And, you know, I think my, you know, my freelance editor, Sylvia Mendoza, and, you know, just everybody that had a hand in this and their, and their names are all on the back of the book. I don't have to go through it on the show, but it's, uh, it's, it's important to know that it is a team effort. And I recognize that now as a, a published author and as a, as a contributing uh, journalist to several online pubs is that, you know, it takes time. And it, it, every time I go into Barnes and Noble or a, a library, I look around, I'm like, man, I would never read half of these books or even want to, but I totally respect the process that went went into getting that tiny little book on a shelf somewhere. It's just a lot of work, but you have to do the work. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on my second book and I'm working on another project right now, but you just have to do it. Books won't write themselves. Uh, you know, editors can only edit so much. There's no magic computer, by the way, Mark, that they take your manuscript of 90,000 words and they throw it in they're like, yep, it's a book now. It's no, it's a back and forth process of late nights and grind and, you know, rereading your work to make sure that your story is how you want it. And, uh, Echo and Ramadi is, is absolutely, uh, the story I wanted to tell. One more for you here. Cause I find this one, you know, especially riveting because of the layers to it, but Lance Corporal Raymond Bowen and what happened to him as, uh, he was involved in a tragic, uh, I don't know how you want to phrase it here, killing of a civilian that sometimes just happens in battle. And, you know, a lot of people will have their, their own arguments and feelings and thoughts on what those things happen as far as collateral damage is concerned. But I'll let you tell the story as far as what went down. But how did you deal with that? And, and how is uh, Lance Corporal Bowen doing these days? Well, first, most importantly, Bowen's fine. He's, you know, all grown up and leading a successful career and family. And it was a tough period for him. And it, he hadn't even shared the story when I when I just said, you know, to 10 years for these guys to process. He never even talked about it until I called him out of the blue and said, Hey, Bowen, it's, it's, it's using, you know, I, I want to share this part of the story because I think it's important. It's emblematic of what every soldier and Marine have to experience when civilians get caught in the crossfire. And it was important to me that he shared the story. And you know, I'm very grateful for that to this day. And, you know, his story is like many, that uh, they were on a routine patrol when um, a vehicle approached their their dismounted patrol too fast. They're on foot. They're in the city streets. Everything's a threat. They're always on high alert. And a vehicle races up. And to protect his Marines, he he fired a, a burst of machine gun fire into the grill of his car to stop it. And one of the rounds ricocheted and later found out that it, it struck a civilian in the head. And he ultimately died from those wounds. And that's something that Bone has had to deal with and carry the rest of his life. And he's doing that because he was following my orders and our orders under the, the mission of what we had to do in, in Iraq and especially in Ramadi and, and in Rupa was kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces. And, you know, you use the term collateral damage What's important also is to understand that I never viewed people, these Iraqi civilians or anyone as collateral damage. They were people and they had wives and husbands and sons and daughters too. And to think that their sacrifice in this war didn't matter uh, would be wrong. It did. Their sacrifice matters. And, um, you know, I, I don't care how it's, construed or interpreted but uh my 
my love and admiration for the people of Iraq who wanted to stand up for their country, that wanted to help the coalition forces and the multinational forces do our job as we were ordered to do. They deserve credit as well. And that's uh, that's something that largely goes unsung. I think the best example I use is by highlighting the sacrifices of my interpreters who were Iraqi uh, citizens who volunteered to join the coalition and help us speak the language so we could be effective at our mission. And that shouldn't be um, you know, undercut in any way, shape or form. And you say it in three words uh, at the very end of that story about Corporal Bowen, Lance Corporal Bowen, is that you end it with, it's never clean. And war is random, war is messy, and as you said, it's never clean. And it, it's a very dangerous and slippery slope, and we've, we've hit this theme often on the podcast, when civilians and regular Americans get involved in matters of combat without any prior knowledge or any sort of... Uh, I guess, experience in the whole thing. Uh, You're taking a a very clear set of morals and standards that occupy civilian life that don't apply in combat. Now, I'm not saying everything we did in combat was right. There are clear mistakes that we've made and things that we have done wrong. But what happened in the case of Corporal Bowen, I mean, that bullet ricocheted. It was never intended for the civilian. It could have ricocheted and hit a building. It could have ricocheted and hit the driver. It could have ricocheted and done a whole bunch of different things. But the random, unpredictable nature of war ended up taking an innocent life. And that happens. It doesn't make anybody feel any better, but it's just the cost of doing business in war. And it's why we have to be very, very careful about how we view the context of this war, both of them, the ones in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and understand that you know the people who are asked to do this, the, the, the guys like you and me are asked to go in harm's way, and, and everybody else who's asked to go in harm's way, um, it, it is incomprehensible to the average person who's never done it, what the that entails, the emotions of it, the intellect of it, everything that goes in it. It, it is complicated and messy. And as you said, it's never clean. No, and it's, it, you know, it's not a, it's not a cost either. You know, it's such a tragedy when that happens, but it, it's, it's something you, you train for, you try and avoid it as best you can, but it's such a dynamic and ever-changing environment when you're thrust into that type of environment where you're literally trying to protect your life, you're trying to protect the lives of civilians, your fellow Marines and soldiers, and you're trying to kill bad guys who are hiding amongst the people trying to kill you. And they're trying to kill civilians. It was, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, mess is the best word I could find in my my limited you know, vernacular to describe it. It is, it is a mess when you, when you break it down because there's so many variables that go into that. And that bullet that day, you're right, could have gone anywhere. But uh, it didn't. And unfortunately, a young 19-year-old kid has to live out the rest of his life dealing with that mess. Did he ever express any of the feelings and emotions to you? Did he ever express anything that still bothers him about it or anything like that? It all bothers him. Um, no, no right-minded person that has uh, any semblance of compassion or humanity could not let it bother them. And and Bone is a is an example of that. It surely bothers him. And you know he could he could pull himself you know, apart from rest of society and, and, and beat himself up about this. But at the end of the day, he also realizes that his number one priority was protecting his Marines and protecting those Marines ensured the safety of an entire city that we were in charge of protecting to provide peace and stability and security to, because without those things, Iraq wouldn't be where it's at today. They're, they're, democratic state, the elections, everything they're doing to try and continue to improve their state of government, their way of life would not be possible if it were not for the brave actions of guys like Raymond Bowen. That's just how granular it gets when you look at it from macro to micro, in my opinion. Do you think that in certain cases, that memory and experience is tougher to deal with than other ones, whether it's your buddy getting wounded or you having to choose to take the life of another combatant, an enemy combatant, because even that sticks with certain people. 
Well, I think all of those pieces of trauma that these young men and women have to deal with, and you, you know this, is they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And I was a 34-year-old captain, 35-year-old captain at the time. So I had a ton of life experience. I had more training. And the way I processed those pieces of trauma was vastly different than that of a 19-year-old kid who just graduated high school the year before. I mean, that's the context people need to remember is like, yeah. you know, they just graduated high school and they've got a year in the Marine Corps and then they're thrust into this foreign country, speaks a different language. Guys are trying to kill them. Cars are trying to blow them up. And there's this 35 year old captain ordering them to do these superhuman acts in the face of great danger with complete uncertainty around them. And they did it. They did it well. And had it not been for their sacrifice, for their bravery and the heroics of these young men and women, you know, we wouldn't have all the freedoms we enjoy today in America. So the lens at which I looked at those events, those pieces of trauma and how I process them are vastly different than that of an 18, 19 year old kid who just graduated high school. And, it, you know, that I will say this, Mark, is that's probably one catharsis I had, if you want to call it a catharsis, is that I never really realized that they were just kids until I wrote the whole book and I'm going through the chapters. I'm looking at the characters. I'm looking at my whiteboards in my office. I'm like, God dang, man, they were young. They were so young. And yet what I was asking them to do, what you asked your soldiers to do at such a young age is just a remarkable ask, you know, it's, it's nuts. To say it redundantly, you don't realize how much experience is experience until you have the experience. (laughs) I mean, like, seriously, that's what it is. Because when you say it, I I think back to to my first deployment, too. I might have been 25, 26 years old when I was, you know, my first deployment, 05, 06. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I didn't have to do the math. Regardless, you know, when when I got to my second deployment and I was in my early 30s, well, now I look at it and I go, I look back on it, I go, you know, the way I handled things in my second deployment was vastly different from my first. And the way I handled things in my first, had I been seven or eight years younger and been a teenager or not even old enough to buy a beer. Um, if that person would have went to war at that point in his life, I mean, who knows how I would have, re- I, I couldn't even put a, a, a finger on it to figure it out because it's just, you know, the, the, the leadership portion of it is one thing, but the actual, you know, the soldiering portion and leadership portion of war is one thing, but the actual physical portion of war that we all have to go through is all only through the pr- the prism that we see it, right? I mean, it's different for everybody. Oh, yeah, spot on. I mean, again, it's that lens at which you look at things. And, you know, we're at a position in life now. You're a little bit, I think you're a little bit younger than me. I'm, I mean, I don't know. I'm a Gen Xer, so it's, you know. I'm only slightly age. better looking than you, though. That's all that matters. This is true. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's why, I don't know. That's why Mark always puts a faux photo up on the podcast of some random dude. Yes. Just me, because he doesn't <laughs> want any competition, um, which I respect. And <laughs> that's an Army Marine thing, by the way. Exactly. It goes, and, go, uh, it goes very deep and way back. <laughs> but we regress. Yeah. You know, it's age and wisdom and experience. They, they play a large part in what we do. And I think until you get to that certain stage in life and, you know, when we were doing what we were doing, man, back in the, you know, deadly streets of Ramadi or wherever in Iraq, wherever the game was on is you don't have time to reflect in, in these esoteric discussions like we do in a podcast at the comfort of our home in New York or in Southern California. Um, and we, we do what we do based off of the experience we have on hand. And, you know, sometimes, that's just got to be enough because as you know, in the military, you can't train for everything. You can train for the fight at hand. Um, I think, you know, what we were dealing with in Iraq and still are today, which is important, you know, we're still in Iraq. We still have a footprint there. We're still fighting ISIS uh, in pockets uh, near the Syrian border, but, uh, and in Afghanistan to, to a degree in the Horn of Africa, but we can't train for everything and you have to make do with what you have. And, I think that bleeds over into any endeavor, whether it's the private sector or, you know, the military is, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to accomplish the mission at hand. And for us in that situation in Ramadi or wherever else, it was, it was cut and dry. We were there to kill or capture anti-Iraqi forces and everything else was a secondary benefit. 
In the macro picture of the book, what shaped it the most? Like, what was the thing that the overarching theme you went to it writing? The people. It had to be about the people. It was important to me that their voices came through, that they were understood as people that they could connect to, um, you know, from small towns in America to bases in the military. And those people needed to be real. And if people want to read about things or events, that's why they pick up the newspaper. If you really want to read a great story about people, about Marines and soldiers and families that know the truest definition of the word sacrifice and service, that's what I captured in my book. And, you know, I was honored that they shared those stories and the people is what it, what it's really about. And, you know, I'd love to appeal to the broadest audience when I wrote the book because I purged it of any military jargon and abstract acronyms and dates and, you know, things like that. But, uh, you know, you look at the cover again, you know, it's a badass Marine on the cover, but, uh, um, you know, I couldn't have put a vase of tulips on the cover and said like, Oh, it's about the power of human connection and you should buy this book. Everybody in Oprah's book club will love it. And, uh, it's still important, though, to understand, though, that it is about the people. It is about what we went through, how we learned from it, how we grew from it, how we continue to process those pieces of trauma and continue to get better. And there's plenty of veterans listening to Hazard Ground or um, other other pods that are vet- veteran-centric that need to understand is that it's, it's all right to hurt. It's all right to feel the pain, but it's all right to get better and it's all right to stay connected and that's what you need to do i mean we we've highlighted so many examples just in this pod alone about how we've stayed connected even though you and i are like pen pals like we for anyone that was like me and mark have never met face to face otherwise it'd be a massive sword fest but uh (laughs) you know which we love which we love and but you know it's through that 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 power of human connection and, and shared love for our country, shared love for veterans and what we do as um, artists and, and leaders that, you know, we bring people together and Mark and hazard ground and everything I do and save the brave. We're all about sharing that love. Joel Carpenter. We're all about building this coalition force of veterans and artists and people that want to give back and share unselfishly to make sure that people succeed in any endeavor. And that's the beauty of it all, man. Amen, brother. Amen. Uh, any criticism at all that you got from the book? Any Anything you heard that was not so pleasant? Uh, I don't know. I get... No, not really. I, Good. I, I mean, aside from like the five <laughs> non-positive reviews out of the over 150 positive reviews on Amazon. And if you're listening to the show and you've read the book, go to Amazon, leave a five-star review if you there love you go. the book. Leave some comments. If you hated the book, leave a five-star review. Um, and tell me why you didn't like it. Beautiful. We'll leave a five-star review because it helps veterans and it helps save the brave because a portion of the proceeds go to save the brave to help veterans with PTS. But, you know, I get a negative review from a guy and then, you know, you can't read into the hate, man. And haters are going to hate. And, you know, if I get a negative review from a guy that's reviewed my book and, uh, you know, an abdominal exerciser and protein bars and a couple other random things on Amazon, really doesn't hold a lot of weight with me but uh they're far overshadowed by the so many positive comments and phone calls and emails like i shared on this pod is that's what it's all about and uh i I probably got a thousand of them i could share with you but uh not enough time in the day for that but it's it's all been great and it's all through our military family our you know veteran supporters civilians uh you know teachers, cops, first responders, entertainers, celebrities that have just gotten behind this story and, you know, just blown it up. It's great. So you said, yeah, working on another book. When can we expect it? What's it about? Give us the details. Working on a second book. It's an amazing story of, again, of military heroics, uh, of an aviator this time that, uh, sacrificed so much over the deadly city of Najaf and uh, I don't want to give it, give it away, but uh, you know, I always try and write again about people and about things of importance and these great stories about our military heroes, because I feel 
Like, that's my thing. You know, if I'm not going to write these stories, who is? And why do we have to wait 50 years to tell these stories like our Vietnam vets? I want to tell them now. And this this next story is just phenomenal. And the other project I'm working on is, again, uh, kind of under wraps right now, but I'm you know trying again to highlight the, the, the bravery and sacrifices of not only those who fought in Iraq, but also the people of Iraq. And I think that they need credit and they need to have some light shined on them so that the rest of the world understands that, hey, we can continue throwing money at the problem in Iraq, but that's not the answer. The answer to the problem is we have to show them what right looks like and we have to do the right thing and really put some skin in the game. So, you know, at the beginning... In the end of every day, Mark, I wake up and I go to sleep knowing that I'm helping veterans. And I think a lot of people think, well, I got to help a bunch of veterans. I got to help a hundred or a thousand or 10,000. No, if you help one each day or each month, you've done more than most Americans will ever do. And that's something to be proud of. And that's something I'm proud of as the executive director of SaveTheBrave.org because we've helped hundreds of veterans over the last several years and we continue to grow. We continue to bring veterans together that have experienced all the stuff we talked about in this pod in a safe environment where they can share their own stories and, and, and really help the healing process. And I think that's something probably that I'm, that I'm most proud of and to be a part of. Well, if you want to help out, again, savethebrave.org or pick up the book, Echo in Ramadi. You can find it on Amazon. It is absolutely worth your time, every single moment of it. And again, it'll do more than just give you some context on the war in Iraq. It'll talk to the human condition and the human spirit. So once again, Scott Husing, we thank you so much for your time. Obviously, brother, it's always great to talk to you. You and I could do this all day long, all night long, and never get bored. But certainly we appreciate you coming on the Hazard Ground once again. Yeah, Mark. Hey, thanks to you. Thanks to all the listeners. Thanks to Matt Pascarella, who's your producer. Yeah, he's like guy. the silent guy behind this whole thing, I but he, he deserves a lot. Man. He does. Love he deserves it. all the credit. Love you, Maddie. <laughs> hey, keep up the fire, brother. Semper Fi. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.